0: good morning good afternoon good evening wherever you are in the world and welcome to the omg MotoGP podcast coming up on the show today i look back at the austrian grand prix that term one incident in the sprint and another banyaya win as he continues to place a stronghold on this championship and more rider and team move gossip coming your way too please make sure you have liked subscribed and left a review either here or on YouTube or wherever you're listening to us. And if you have a question, query or comment, you can send us a 30-second voice note, or email, it's omgmotogp at gmail.com. Right, the recording date is Monday the 21st of August. My name is Harry Benjamin, joined, as always, by former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Ewan, and to analyse all things Austria and chat to us a bit about his life and career so far, is a British champion, BSB race winner, son of a legend, Paul Smart, nephew of another, Barry Sheen, and current Superbike Director of Technology and BSB Technical Director, Got Smart. Did I get it all in there, Scott?
2: Yeah, I think so. That was one of the longest intros ever for me. (laughs) Well done.
1: I could have made it a much shorter intro, but I probably wouldn't be able to broadcast it. (laughs) Yeah, but there would have been a lot of agreement with it, probably, Keith. Well, do you know what, Scott? I mean, I think that we ought to, first of all, just... I mean, Harry's made the intro there, which is a really good one, because he's accurate. Your pedigree is second to nobody that I know in in the sport generally. I mean, your dad was obviously Paul Smart. Ducati are in vogue at the moment, but he's the man who basically put them on the map all those years ago at Imola, if I remember right, the Imola 200. Obviously, Uncle Barry, uh, (laughs) your mum being Maggie Sheen, sister of of Barry. Um, I hope she's well, by the way. Um, A lot of pedigree. I wonder how much that influenced you into your vocation, not perhaps right now. I can understand why you might have gone motorbike racing. You were a 250cc British champion and a bloody good one, if I might say so, back in the day. I remember watching you around Ash and, uh, and and it looked like you were destined for great things on the bike, but in the end, you became better known for things off the bike or about yeah.
2: the bike.
1: <laughs> yes, so I was a family underachiever on the bike.
2: <laughs> yeah, great. So I don't know the bike racing is brilliant and part of the part of the family heritage isn't it and I think initially they thought I was going to escape the bike racing because I did GCSE day levels and went off and was doing a degree in physics so finally there was somebody in this genetic lineage that wasn't going to be a bike racer fail (laughs) (laughs) after a few fewer um I don't know I used to ride a bit a little bit on the road and dad was had a bike dealership and said you know what stop riding so quick on the road go race a couple of times because he figured it get it out of my system and the rest, as they say, was history. 20 years later, I was kind of only just at the end of the career. So I raced for 20 years. So it was great.
1: And you did pretty well at it. I mean, BSP winner is, is not as easy as it sounds, uh, perhaps in the World Championship context. Or huh. well, does it sound easy nowadays? I'm not so sure. 250cc back in the day, though, that's um, your, what your Moto2 equivalent nowadays, I suppose, if we look at it in, along those lines. But you mentioned the physics degree. You aren't shy, I've got to say, in in an opinion department when it comes to putting your ideas to people and making them <laughs> feel inadequate. I've always felt yeah. inadequate when I speak to you, Scott, when it comes to the technical <laughs> side of things. <laughs> I had no choice other than to be a mobile racer, and that was it for me. I was stuck with that because I wasn't clear enough to be anything else. But it, it, it seems to me that you carved a very, very large furrow through the rule books um, to help particularly in later times, with that, that disparity between manufacturers, in, in, particularly in, in, in superbike terms. I mean, that disparity is something that everyone's in, in turmoil of over for years and years and years. And then you come on the scene and uh, try to level it all out. How difficult was it?
2: Um, very difficult. The politics are much more difficult than the actual rulemaking or the technical side of it. So the politics, n- nobody enjoys change and obviously anybody that has an advantage also doesn't want to, to concede anything so it's a very fine line trying to manipulate people into positions where you kind of almost have to force their hand so you, you need to always know something that they need but something you need back or something they need to concede the other thing is it, it's very difficult um and it's, it's quite a good time for it. It's, it it's difficult for anybody to give um give away something to end up with lower performance and they're talking about that and obviously, both the World Championships right now where the tracks are getting too small for the power of the bikes. Uh, that's the, the, the long and short of it. Um, unless the crowd's going to be 150 meters away from the edge of the racetrack with insane amounts of runoff, you can't have the bike going any faster. So when you start discussing how do we make things slower, um, slower doesn't mean not such good racing. And everybody forgets that because everybody always looks at the stopwatch and the whole given is to go faster each year. But the reality is it's the show and it's to figure out who's the best at controlling the bike and the equipment that they've got. So we're trying to figure out who is the most skilled rider and they don't have to do that with 310 horsepower. They can do it with 250 horsepower and so on and so forth. So you sit in a technical meeting and you've got politicians and technicians in these meetings and nobody wants to concede anything because they forget that everybody else is also going to be conceding something. It's like, no, I can't possibly give up 50 horsepower because then I can't win. Well everybody else is going to as well and a lot of people are so insular um, in their teams and in their manufacturer roles that they forget the big picture and that was something that was very very hard to get across in world Superbikes. and actually everybody did really start to get on board and work together with some fairly informal meetings between all the manufacturers and um, and finally actually covid helped because we could sit there and say one person from each manufacturer in a big office. You can't bring an army of three or four people. And then that allowed people to speak their mind and also say, in my opinion, rather than the only opinion of the manufacturer. And if there are three of you from a manufacturer, you then speak up in front of the others. So we got a little bit more honesty. And obviously we saw through 20 and then 21, an incredible World Superbike Championship. But we're also um, a pivotal place in World Superbikes where you've kind of got two generations of bikes. You've got the Kawasaki and the Yamaha with the the longer stroke engines, that a previous generation of engine. They've both got the, the same type of cylinder heads with the rockers. However, you've then got the three newer bikes that are all on the 81mm bore, the higher revving, higher power, really focused sports bikes. And they're, they're in another generation of engines. So to try and achieve a balance with the mix of the two kind of generations of bikes is even harder and then that brings up a load more kind of philosophical um political questions should an old bike be able to beat a new bike
1: i tell you what that's world superbikes and british superbikes to an extent but in MotoGP, gp when you're talking about prototypes that are coming through and the manufacturers all get their heads together and make the rule book to suit the the overall manufacturing um position should we say when you find that, that you, you're trying to perhaps get these motorbikes to be as entertaining and be as prototype ish as they should be, some motorbikes work well with extra horsepower and some work really well with lesser horsepower. So you get that disparity immediately. As soon as, if we're not the, you know, you can give a Ducati, it seems, as much horsepower as you like and the thing still works pretty well. Um, but the, the Honda, for instance, doesn't seem to be working well. It's a sharp motorbike, but since they took away the, the factory. Um, electronics packages and and went with the Magneti Morelli system throughout the whole of MotoGP, it threw up a whole load of other problems for them. I mean, how do you overcome it from a technical point of view? There's never anyone really happy because then you can moan about the fact that you know a a, a spec tyre works better on a Yamaha or on a Ducati or, or on or whatever. Um, and so immediately you've got a bike that's trying to be adjusted to suit a specification tyre and Michelin have had a habit of bringing something different on a regular basis, which throws everybody in the chaos data wise. How do you level this? Up? I mean, I'm going to answer my own question because the fact is, is whoever's doing it at MotoGP at the moment, they're doing a pretty good job because we were within a second across all the manufacturers, across all of the formats, across everything there is there. So it is very, very competitive, but how do you bring all that back from the brink as you've already mentioned? From the 150 metres away fans and losing race tracks, classic race because we're getting too qu- too quick. How do you bring that back?
2: So there's already been some rumors in the press about what the potential is, like reduction in capacity again, uh, and some different changes in MotoGP. So luckily, they're far enough out that the manufacturers have got time to develop a bike, but stability is the key for getting everybody to a good working level. So the tires are reasonably stable, the electronics package has been reasonably stable in in both both or all of the world championships recently, and that's allowed, and also British Superbikes. And that's allowed everybody to, to actually understand how they work and, and work to the optimum of them. And provided you don't keep changing tire constructions and tire sizes, which some of the, uh, the championships with control tires have had issues with that, shall we say, uh, you, you don't have enough time to respond with a lack of testing anymore. That if a new tire or a new tire construction comes and your bike doesn't work on it, to develop a swinging arm or a new chassis stiffness takes too long. So they, when there's stability in the tire constructions. You can fine tune your chassis and everything working around it to that tire, uh, to that fuel, to that set of electronics, and so on and so forth. You still have to be, more so in the production-based categories, you still have to be a little bit dynamic with the rules because there can be curveballs thrown at you because you don't quite know what's going to happen when uh, a new motorcycle comes out, a new production bike with even more power. You you don't quite know what's going to happen. So you you, you do have to react to that. You also have to try and trust the manufacturers that they're telling you what's coming down their production line. Um, with the prototype classes, it's a little bit easier because they, you <laughs> you're building a your bike specifically inside the framework of the regulations. So I think that's the key: stability. Uh, having stability is the way to allow everybody to get the best from what they've got.
1: What would you have done with MotoGP regulations? I mean, there are some things that seem to have slipped through the net a little bit here that have almost caught. Other manufacturers, by surprise, within the rules, you know, when the, the gearboxes, when we got seamless gearboxes up and down, when they came out, you know, I've spoken to people at Erta, spoken to people at Dorna who, who wished that they'd never seen seamless gearboxes because the cost of producing those things and developing those things were, were disproportionate, even though I think they're a brilliant addition to motorbikes in general. Then you've got the aero issue. We never wanted to go down that rabbit hole, but here we are now, everybody having to spend tons and tons of money and it's argue, argued really that Yamaha and Honda, the Japanese manufacturers, have found themselves at a disadvantage for the first time in decades. You now, what would you have done? Where would you go from now with MotoGP rules? Would you change the manufacturers having control over that rulebook?
2: Um, it's very, very difficult. So well, obviously when the manufacturers control it, it's the tail wagging the dog, isn't it? But... They're the people that know where they want to spend it and and put their, their effort. So you kind of have to work down the middle because at the end of the day, MotoGP is a test ground for them to develop engineers and te- technology. So they've got to be doing that. Um, budget-wise, so the aero, for example, if you have budget, you will spend it. So it doesn't matter if you can put the, uh, the genie back in the bottle as far as aero goes or various other concepts out there like the seamless shift gearboxes, because you'll spend the money somewhere else. But unless you can implement a budget cap, then you can't stop the spending. Uh, And budget caps, as Formula One has proven, are incredibly difficult to implement. And there's nowhere near enough um, uh, technical support at a MotoGP event or from the Federation to be able to manage that. Uh, I've got friends in Formula One that you've met, Keith. So some of my friends that were my mechanics when I was racing a 250 are are now senior in Formula One teams. And the amount of staff and the amount of money it costs uh, to manage the cost cap is incredible. So just the cost for managing a cost cap is huh. huge, so it is implementable. But how in, much would a top team
0: term? in MotoGP be spending a season? Just out of curiosity,
2: what do you think? And, and obviously, I don't know the specifics. I've only just been sh- shown snippets, and some manufacturers are spending considerably more than others. Well, I
0: mean, uh, well, under the budget cap in in Formula One, what this year they, they can spend. A hundred and thirty-five million euros. So I'm I'm going to say it's less than hundred and thirty-five million.
2: <laughs> I, I think there are several teams around the hundred and thirty-five million, and there's one or two manufacturers that are spending probably double or triple that when you actually figure out every last penny. So it's an insane amount of money. Insane.
1: So, what would you see as a benefit to MotoGP moving forward? Forget about the other classes for the moment, if we can. Moto three and Moto two. Um, they've got their own situations coming up in the in the following year with changes to tyre manufacture, for instance. That's going to make a massive difference to to how they sort themselves out over the next year. But let's let's stick with MotoGP. Where would you be if you were sat there? I mean, maybe we should be clear on this. The, the manufacturers basically make the rules. ERTA, um, International Race Teams Association, are there to police the rules, along with Danny Aldridge and everyone technical director, to look after the way that those rules are implemented and then it sorts itself out from that point. But who, who reigns in the manufacturers? I mean, can Dorner, can Erta have any influence over where they're allowed to go? Or is it literally the manufacturers association that, the the sports association that allows themselves carte blanche to what they do? No, they definitely don't have carte blanche and uh, Carmelo, Espolita has been
2: incredible over the years, uh, driving it in a really useful direction. Uh, the implementation of a control ECU, uh, the, um, the CRT bikes. So implement the CRT bikes, and that's the thin end of the wedge, getting that in, getting into then later on to control electronics, and then implementing it across the board. It's very much the same as World Superbikes by, and British Superbikes, by implementing the EVO regulations, which were a reduced level of performance, and a control ECU in British championship, which then became the whole championship. exactly the same method in world superbikes so you kind of almost have to prove it works get it through the door and then finally implement it across the board so carmelo has certainly had a massive amount of influence and corrado Cecinelli is his right hand man for the the technology side of of Dorna, and corrado is one of the leading figures but he's a very quiet and quiet person who sits in the background and doesn't doesn't do podcasts like this so um (laughs) So he's one of the brains behind MotoGP, and, and he's almost an invisible figure. So there, there is a lot from the Dawner side that is implemented there. And obviously from the earther side, they kind of manage and, and implement the regulations and control the regulations at the events. So it's, it's a lot of work, but um, it needs to be slower uh, at the end of the day. And we've talked about, and when we've met before, we've talked about reduction in tyre grip, reduction in tyre usage, which uh, the reduction in grip is also something that's quite prevalent in my mind, because the high levels of grip actually make the racetracks smaller, if that makes sense. And that's something we can, we can come back to later. So overall, we need a reduction in speed, but we don't want to damage the show. So the skill level of the riders is still going to be there to be demonstrated and the budgets are there. So you're not going to reduce the budgets. Um, but also if you can develop the bikes in the direction that actually is useful for the road bikes and, and the, the future te- development of technology, then that's also a really useful thing.
1: Okay, let's, I mean, you, you mentioned there about tyres, for instance. We've got the big thing at the moment, and we still don't know where we are with it because it's still, you know, shrouded in mystery as to how they're getting along with this new measurement system that they've got, the, the software that, that measures the tyre pressures throughout the race to, to make sure that they don't end up with a tyre pressure that's too low. Um, simplistically, and I did say that I wasn't as smart as you by some um, measure um, a little earlier on. Why don't we just pump the bloody tyres up the 2.2 bar to start with and, 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 and reduce some of that grip that they've got when the things are squidging into the track and, and giving them... A, I mean, is, it, is there a system or is there a way as simple as that? I mean, because it seems to be a no-win situation with this tyre monitoring system to me at the moment. As soon as the 1.8 bar they start with, if they go above 2.2 bar, they've, they've got no grip from the front end particularly. The back end doesn't really matter as much as the front, obviously, from a motorbike racing perspective. But as soon as they're in traffic and it starts to balloon, so we, we keep the form of the tyre rather than it squidging into the track when it's got a little less pressure in there. I mean, is is, is there a simple way of, of just starting with a higher tyre pressure?
2: There is. Uh, I mean, higher tyre pressure reduction in grip. With it comes other problems. Uh, obviously, you get the inconsistency in the MotoGP tyre where there's almost like a turning point when you go above a certain pressure, the tire doesn't work so well anymore. Um, But then you can develop around that. But then if you say the tire pressure is 2.2, the next set of tires that come out will have a softer, actual physical construction in the tire, and the construction will be back to being the actual air pressure inside it. So the extreme contrast of the construction being in the tire and not using air pressure was the Bridgestone tire in MotoGP. And you only had to go look at one of the tire fitting machines where you kind of got the big steel bars that come across and the little hook that feeds the tire onto the rim they had all had like doublers like huge box sections steel welded to them because the tire was so incredibly stiff and strong that it literally only needed a bar which was like enough to hold it on the rim that's all it was the air was doing the construction the flex everything else basically came from the construction of the tire it's also why they were like a thousand euro for a rear tire 10 years ago 15 years ago so it was an incredible kind of step in technology but if you the polymers have got better the constructions have got better the technology that, and, and the knowledge of how it works has got better so to say you need to make a step back in grip is almost impossible without for example massively and incredibly reducing tire numbers so if you reduce the number of tires you're allowed then the tires have to last a lot longer and the tech isn't there right now to have the same level of grip with double or triple the durability of the tire and like we said when we've met before you've got to define performance is performance outright grip or is performance a tire that lasts five times the distance with 80% of the grip. So, and also I think people talk about higher grip when they mix it up with predictability. So a higher grip tire is not safer for me, a tire that you've got really good feel and you can feel when it's going to slide. It's predictable. It slides in a nice way. That's a safe tire. And you can go back to the late nineties or the early noughties when you had, uh, michelin versus dunlop for example in 500 so at one point you had one at each end of the bike uh, for kenny Roberts' team and the dunlop had less grip but had really good feel the michelin had ultimately more grip but it was a much finer edge to live on so and only if you got the very best michelin did you have enough feel to actually finish most races so whilst it had more grip a lot more crashes happened so grip is not the same as safety um and also the crashes back in those days was ultimately much lower grip uh, there were the classic high sides or you tuck the front and the whole rider slid out. We've now got to a point where we've got so much edge grip that when the riders slide and lose for example the, you lose the back end the bike will have a go at gripping again. I mean you're at 50 degrees plus lean angle you end up 90 degrees to the track and then the rear tire grips again and instead of having a classic high side and you go out the riders have been thrown back in. So there's there's an element where reduction in grip reduction in tire numbers actually has untold benefits for
1: us. What would you do? I mean, you obviously look at this from a from a rulemaking perspective in World Superbike and British Superbikes, that's your job. But if you were looking in to Motor GP, what would you do to move us forward, to give the the scenario that we're talking about here? What is there something that comes to your mind in your role as a rulemaker, as a technical rulemaker?
2: I think the direction is correct. I think uh, reduction in the capacity of the engines, so you get more efficiency in the engines, um, to, to produce massive power output from smaller engines. Uh, you could potentially have a, a rev cap so that they don't, so that they last really well. However, the manufacturers don't like rev caps because it allows them to push technology further and further to get better performance out of the materials and, and the design. Um, a reduction in tires, massive reduction in, in tire quantity that's allowed at any given event.
1: Will sustainable fuels? give us a reduction in performance in the initial no. phase? Nope. Nope.
2: So basically... We're we going to be going down it, the
1: same road, even though the MotoGP are committed to sustainable fuels, but they will still be chucking out the same kind of power.
2: Uh, absolutely. So the, the almost drop-in replacement um, fuel for that's been tested by a lot of manufacturers, same performance. It, it literally, you can pour it straight in the tank with and, and change almost nothing on the engine or on the electronics. Tiny, tiny tweaks, and you've got the same performance as before. So that's with the the 40% from non-fossil origin.
1: You mentioned, you know, reduction in capacity. Um, We've been there before with the 800s and they were universally hated by just about every rider. Um, You know, no rider wants to ride a motorbike that that performs in the way that those did. We've moved on a bit since then, of course. The the, motorbikes are in a completely different way really nowadays. Do you think that that's a viable situation going back, moving them down to maybe a 750 or something along those lines?
2: Well, 750s have been done before. i haven't they super bikes. <laughs> I'm reading all the the um the S750 stuff in dad's old magazines recently. Um, smaller capacity is going to make less power. The tech that they learned in the 800 would have come to the 990s anyway. So all the technology um, that that happens for the higher revving, higher performance 800cc, it was inevitably coming. It's, it's part of the of the development process. And then that got that new technology which wasn't new got implemented into the thousands and then as we go back to 800s, 850s, 700s, 650s whatever it is then you're still going to carry over all that you've learned, plus more because you're going to get new ideas new inspirations with a smaller capacity engine and then you can see just what horsepower you can get from something smaller
1: okay then ride height adjustments and aero. aero do we dump it?
2: most have aero if it's got a fairing on it if it's got a front fender it has aero so we're going to go naked? <laughs> right. Or no. is there one fairing shape for everybody? If you, if there's not one fairing shape and there's there is a fairing on it, there is error.
0: Can you put the likes of Phil and many others who've got in touch that, that and it comes back to something you said at the moment, you know, the, the, there seems to be a consensus of, you know, if we're not getting faster each year, then, then there's a failure. But the pursuit of technology, of course, comes with that. And that's, especially in MotoGP, the pinnacle, it's what you are pursuing and actually looking at. Um, but Phil says, I'm worried that MotoGP, looking at it as it currently is, especially after the Austrian Grand Prix with the likes of Ducati and Peco Bagniaia, are we about to go into a period of dominance like we're seeing over and over again in Formula One? Right now it's Max Verstappen. Is this what MotoGP is going to become like now, like Formula One?
2: Ducati have a genius at the helm who has transformed other manufacturers in the past. And is not just amazing technically. He's also quite phenomen- phenomenal, phenomenal um, in a political situation as well. So seen him in action, and um, he- he's he's brilliant at manipulating numbers and people. So uh,
3: <laughs>
2: absolutely full credit to him. I, I think um, he's one of the most respected person people in the panic. And uh, so obviously Gigi Dallinier, he has built a bike that's. Works for everybody he had the foresight of putting different styles of riders on it younger riders as well he didn't just take the part the the current masters and has done a phenomenal job of building a massively insanely good motorbike a prettier have also done a really good job of catching up so a way of resetting it is to change the regulations so there will be a period of relearning and uh, everybody's got to hope they've got some engineers that are as good as Gigi, because whatever the rule book is uh you need somebody that can get the very best from it
1: Gigi, for me, I mean, obviously he was at Aprilia originally and and did great things for them. They're doing it on their own without him now. He moved across to Ducati and did great things for them. But for me, his biggest uh, advantage at Ducati was that he seemed to bring the factory to the racetrack. He connected the factory with the racetrack. He got the two elements to work together. Sometimes it seems to me that Honda isn't able to do that. Um, It almost seems that Honda Racing Department that's at the track doesn't seem to be working quite as well with with its brilliant technicians back in Japan. Uh, and that's where Gigi seemed to have got Ducati-gelled and, and cohesive communication between all the lines that it takes to get the thing from the factory to the track and working as one great big nice package.
2: Yeah, and also it's very interesting when you see the way the Japanese work in the in the. In the teams so whether it's superbike or MotoGP, you've got whenever you have a meeting when you do a homologation for a bike when you do any visit to the japanese factories there's an army of people with you everybody's taking notes about everything so there's a little notebook being scribbled in everything you say gets written down often by multiple people so there's actually an information overload who actually disseminates that information who back in japan sits down and reads all the handwritten notes from 30 people all saying the same thing so there's not, there's almost an information overload in certain aspects, and then because of that, the it takes so long to make an incremental change. Um, I've ridden some endurance before, and because of the Japanese influence, you had to test and then test the other option, then test the first option again, then test the other option, and backwards and forwards, testing an offset on a front fork like 200 laps across a couple of riders for a two mil offset change. Whereas the, the Europeans will tend to move a lot more quickly. Um, and obviously it's been working very well for for KTM and, and Ducati to, well, and pretty all, all the European manufacturers have all taken great leaps in a much faster rate. So that disconnection that the Japanese, like you said, have. The other thing that is really apparent for me and is a historical thing is the, the factory team. Everybody aspired to be in the factory team. We really pushed hard to get rid of that Amwell Superbike by regulation a quite a long time ago. So eight eight to nine years ago, we made the manufacturers produce kits. So you, if you're a private team, you could buy the same cylinder head, camshaft, and all the other parts of the bike, uh, the forks, the brakes, everything that was available to you. If you had the budget, the mechanic and the rider, and uh, the technicians, you could compete with the factory team. Top rack on a private Kawasaki beat Jonathan Ray. But it wasn't private. He had exactly the same parts available to him. Yamaha really took that to heart in World Superbikes. When they arrived back, they had a two man factory team and then a couple of other riders on Yamahas. but pretty quickly, they created two teams with GRT and the factory team run by Paul Denning, Crescent. Plus they've obviously at one point had a Tencate bike out there and some other good, um, good mid-level back end of the field runners. But bear in mind, we're talking such close lap times. It's all useful data. So by having four bikes under effectively one banner with one collective set of data, one collective set of notes, combined technical meetings, you're looking at the data from four riders. Certainly, the Japanese are still very much is the factory team, HRC and World Superbikes factory team, and a very very satellite um, semi-supported team. MotoGP, you've got the factory Hondas and LCR, for example, were always a satellite-ish team, and then they, with the crutch and stuff, they got factory bikes, but it's not a part of the body. It's not really integrated enough. Uh, You look at Ducati, two, then four, then six, then however many bikes, all under the same kind of roof as it were. For sure, there were the the year-old factory stuff passed down, but it was all data and all information coming back to one central location. The the satellite teams weren't ignored. You look at Yamaha, they're down to two bikes. They don't have great amounts of data coming in. They just don't have so much to draw on. Uh, All the European factories have got four five six
1: factory bikes can you see ktm getting their way a couple of extra spots on the grid maybe as Husqvarna. you know we've got gas gas out there we've got Husqvarna that are in um some of the the uh, ktm guys if you like in moto three um they're desperate to try and get as many bikes on the grid as, as ducati or at least getting to close to that um, to, for that very reason so that they can bring in all of that data that you're talking about ducati have been very good at that and they are all factory bikes probably the only thing that's different is the fact that you know the full factory team might have a few more personnel disseminating all that information that's coming through perhaps compared with Pramac or then Grasini or whatever it might be
2: but but during the week they'll, they'll be looking at all of the data so exactly that it's it's one big data set it's not lots of different data sets with another team you also get to try out some younger riders and those younger riders have come through and are now <laughs> fighting for world championships Whereas Yamaha, where are you going? To, you need two stalwarts on the bike right now because you need to try and get results and develop the bike. Where are you going to be bringing new talent from? You don't have another four or five bikes. So back to what we said at the beginning. When you're trying to balance the regulations, you need a bit of information uh, you need to give and you need to take. It's a negotiation at the end of the day, even though it's technical. So the initial um, discussion about a reduction in capacity, if the press, which is not from internal information, but if the press is to be believed, there's been support for a reduction in capacity by several manufacturers. However, there's also been a swing back the other way um, and a push back against new regulations and changes in regulations by an Austrian manufacturer.
3: It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P.
2: Manufacturer. So, an Austrian manufacturer wants two grid slots but doesn't want the change in (laughs) capacity. What do you do?
1: Well, it's going to be an interesting scenario that is for certain when it all comes out at the the moment. But um, yeah, you've got KTM that you know most people think they're going to be the team to beat come twenty twenty four. You know, they will they manage to make that step to to be consistently quicker than than Ducati? They've not failed in any other class they've ever been in in any other motorcycle discipline ever anywhere at any time in their lives. So the Austrian factory is looking good for the moment moving forward, but.
2: Will they be able? Uh, of- Austrian it's- town. It's it, it's a town now. <laughs> it's just it's enormous. Have you been to their, their race workshop?
1: I've seen it. I've not been there, but I've seen it. I so think the, that I visited- the thing for me has got to be um, whether they are going to be able to twist Carmelo and Dorna's You know, Dorna have turned around and said that they they they've left spots for other manufacturers to join. There are no other manufacturers, so therefore, KTM in a in a gas gas and a and a Husqvarna kind of guys would just about fulfill that um it, it is going to be an interesting discussion to i think it's already i think it's already been i think somebody's already made their mind up in, in my belief that behind the scenes i think there's already been a decision i would be slightly surprised if we didn't have more motorbikes on the grid at mm. the start of next year that's okay i was just i was just saying to keith that, off air before
0: this watching herve ponteral give an interview over the weekend it just made it seem like Something had happened. He was saying nothing, but saying a lot at the same time. Well,
1: Irve, Irve's in the best position to know out of all of them. He runs a Tech 3 team with Gas Gas Motorbikes, which are KTMs. And basically, he's the head of IRTA, the International Race hey. Teams Association. And they're the ones that oh. give, give the slots after Dorner have approved it. So... Yeah, exactly.
2: So, but also, you've got to bear in mind, there's a MotoGP commission. There are four people on that MotoGP commission. So, you've got IRTA, MSMA, Dorner and FIM. So... Yeah. And uh, the, the casting vote is donors, the promoters. So now, if Tom want... and, and already agree, then then it's pretty much done anyway. So it, it kind of doesn't matter. However, for the look of the thing, if, for example, KTM did want those extra slots, they could also accede to a rule change in 27 for the capacity. So it could be a win-win for everybody.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's a nice bit of negotiation to be done, I'm sure, yeah, if it's not exactly. already...
2: K- that- KTM wants something, Dorna wants something, there, there has to be a, a middle ground.
1: <laughs> and at the end of the day, we actually had some racing in Austria. <laughs> as it well as is. all this going on behind the scenes, because obviously, Austria, it's the middle of the season, we're at the middle of the season, and the amount of work that was going on around the trucks and around the in the offices at, uh, at the Red Bull Ring was incredible, really, and you can be fairly sure that, you know, we finally got some announcements, didn't we, Harry, regarding uh, who's going where.
0: Yeah and actually the, you you mentioned it earlier you know the um, Scott the appeal of of going to, to to factory teams and and having the factory bite but of course now that's not always the case because you you know you can have a satellite team but have the main factory bite but the la you the know, Giants Arco over uh, the weekend uh, lots of rumors building up to it Suddenly confirmed. Okay, bye-bye, Pramac. Hello, LCR Honda. I don't, think he think... had,
1: I don't think he had anywhere else to go, Harry, so he was stuck with that decision. No, well, it sounded
0: like what? He was offered a one-year at Ducati and then, or two years uh, at Honda. I'd stayed was... with Ducati. Really? Well, uh, Scott, what would you have done?
2: Probably stayed with Ducati. I <laughs> think his other bonuses and all the other stuff, that like helmets and leathers, deals, external sponsors... Potentially prefer having a chance of winning, but you don't know what that Honda deal looks like. So the Honda deal might just be enough for a lifetime's pension.
1: Well, I, I think if you're looking at the money side of it, yeah, I, I mean, they, they, but at the end of the day, you're, you know, when you're at the end of a career, you either want as much money as you can get or a result, one or the other.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, Alvaro Bautista as well decided to go for results, and look at what it's transformed his career again. So, second, a second career almost. So yeah, you, you, it's it's an emotive decision, and he's obviously been in Pramac for quite a few years, and sometimes you need a change as
3: well.
0: It, I suppose it's, it goes a long way just being wanted. I suppose doesn't it? Even you know, regardless of of how how good your manufacturer is, if if, if you're being if Honda are showing you interest and keenness, and we want you to be implemented to the team and help develop it, you've got Mark Marquez saying, yeah, it'd be great to have Zarco on board if if he stays around at Honda. Uh, you know. It's all nice stuff to have, which which can be more appealing. I liken it to uh, Formula One with um, uh, Oscar Piastri going off to McLaren instead of Alpine. Alpine, you know, gave did you know, cast him aside, didn't really want him. And then by the time it was too late, they did say they wanted him. Well, he sorry, I've signed a multi year deal with McLaren. They showed more interest. Cheers, thank you very much. Goodbye. Well,
1: the last time Zarco did something like this, he found himself in a right load of trouble, didn't he? It was the middle of the year, yeah. and he and he said to KTM that, you know, I'm giving you notice because basically I, I want you to know that. I'm going to be on my way. So they said, all right, bye now. I'm fired him <laughs> out of there straight away. So cool. uh, Zarko has got form for, um, you know, wearing his heart on his sleeve and finding himself in a. I, you know, that Honda is going to be a very, very, I just, I couldn't see how that was going to work with Zarko's style. I thought, you know, Polis Bargro, when he went there, I thought Polis Bargro's style would suit it. And it absolutely didn't. It didn't work for him either. So it's going to be a real difficult time for but- for, for, for Zarko to get that together with, with Honda. I mean, it's a factory bike and they've got to pull all the stops out. But with the lack of testing time and the lead in engineering time that there is in MotoGP GP nowadays, you know, they are bottom of the pile at the moment, Honda, for managing what is still a very quick motorbike, but but just not the full package.
2: The things you never thought you'd hear yourself say.
1: I mean, so like,
2: Honda have classically built things with lots more horsepower and quite poor handling but they seem to have got that cracked a few years ago, but now they've taken some steps. Well, they just haven't developed at the rate that everybody else has.
0: Yeah, well, now, of course, what this does do is it opens several doors, possibly, um, and movements. Bezecchi, where's he going to go? Sounds like Valentino Rossi wants him to firmly stay at VR46. And what do you do when Valentino Rossi says he wants you to stay? Well, you probably stay where you are, don't you? Uh more Bedelli, maybe to Pramac. And, of course, as we mentioned, the KTM uh, conundrum. What happens there? Pedro Acosta biting at the heels are uh, uh, to get uh, one of those bikes or a new bike offering uh, now before we carry on i do just need to say um that we are part of the motormouth network so i must tell you about the latest motormouth podcast offering uh, which is a fascinating chat with the journalist adam Hay nichols all about his recent trip uh, to the ukraine and his experience on the front line as well as his new book Charles Leclerc, a biography so it's a fascinating listen just search the Motor Mouth podcast Wherever you listen to your podcast, it's a, it's a real page turner, both the podcast and the book. I must tell I, you,
1: I, I just I'm trying to make a link there. How on earth you yeah. could get Ukraine, you, you know, like the, the whole thing. That's like... it,
0: the two aren't intrinsically linked, uh, but he he, he he just he wanted to go and see it for himself, and he went there with a, a fantastic charity to to literally help on the front line and driving an ambulance. It's a really interesting story. He's a man that wears many many hats, uh, and he was also plugging his new book as well. So it's well worth a listen uh, or a read or a read yeah um look let's speaking of ktm um the disparity i th- was interesting and i perhaps scott you might know more between binder and miller and their races over the weekend binder flying high miller falling like a stone
1: again
2: why i don't know i wasn't at the race it's who knows but it's uh Bike racing is a fickle beast, isn't it? It's uh, 90% of it's in your head. So if you get out of bed the wrong side, it can go sideways for
3: you.
1: I felt at the weekend, there was a lot of tension. I think that it was a situation where, you know, that sprint race on Saturday, I'd never seen, it was almost like a boxing match where everyone was bloody, you know, hyping themselves up and, you know, giving it the full on. And I'd never seen anything quite like that before. I must say that it was the tension on the grid and a, and that was coming to a telescreen. I wasn't there either, Scott. So it was one of those ones where I sort of sat so back and I thought, I've never really seen that so many riders looking like that, beating their chest and then trying to hype themselves up for the turn one, the inevitable turn one incident. Um, it was actually slightly scary. I've got to say, if you, if your motor three riders started doing it, well, you know, the, the under 17s, you'd want to, take them to one side back to the classroom and give them all the talking to but when your top class riders are beginning (laughs) to pump themselves up ready for a war you know 14 laps around there it's a short lap it's a it's a a hectic lap you got very difficult opening part of the lap as well because you're jockeying for position trying to make a start and what happened of course was was Maverick Vinales and I, I, I know you won't know any more than the rest of us on this one Scotty because it's a why their clutch, why Aprilia can't make that work at the moment, I don't know. Everyone else is getting really, really good starts nowadays, but the Aprilia just seems to... It reminds me of the old dry clutch syndrome, where you've got it spinning at 12,000 RPM, all on a, a load of grip, and it bogs down, and you have to take another handful of clutch to make it move. Well, in today's scenario, that, of course, means that you're at the back of the bloody pack get, by the time you get to turn one. But... I'd be interested. In it. I've got a real opinions about the, the the term one incident and how it all unfolded in the end. And I'd be interested to hear. Did you see it? Did you? Did you manage to watch it, Scott?
2: No, I've still got those to watch. There's actually too much bike racing now. So you have got, yeah. oh, <laughs> <you've> got so <laughs> many races. <laughs> uh, also, there was North America at the weekend. There's BSB to watch World Superbike races and three three World Superbike races the weekend. So it's quite an overload. The interesting, I think, there's been obviously summer break the psychology of the short races is interesting, and I think one of the masters of short races and reverse grids was Jonathan Ray. So if you certainly look at what he did in the World Superbikes when they reversed the first three rows for a couple of seasons, he then spent a lot of time working on his instant pace. So how quick could he be in the first lap? And you can see it. As he exited the pit lane, he was flat out, and like he's a master of trying to refine every aspect of his race. Um, also, he learned how to be super crazy aggressive in the first couple of laps. And he actively worked on that. And then I can remember seeing him like storm through, literally to be at the front again, like starting 10th on the grid, but being in the front in the first lap, sometimes the second lap. But it was act- he actively worked on it. We've had that gap where people have had a chance to go back and review, the, like I said, the intensity of the MotoGP season is so crazy now. They finally had a chance to reflect on the early races and see where you win or lose and obviously you win or lose a sprint race quite often in the first two corners so you know that you've got to kind of be there at the end of the first lap definitely and i I wonder if that's played a certain role and also last few seasons MotoGP gp seems to have already been doing their signings at round three so like all the re-signings are happening almost too early and now i think there's obviously there has been a bunch of movement it's a bit later this year there's been movement through this the summer season And there are possibly a few people that are just out to prove what they can do. So I think it's a culmination of everything. Haven't raced for a few weeks. You've kind of reviewed everything that's gone on in the first part of the season. So now you know you have to have an amazing start and be aggressive in the first corner. Uh, You want a better ride for next year. And that has, has created a situation where everybody was very pent up on the Saturday afternoon.
1: So, we all get to turn one in a bit of a hurry. Um, It's uh, Maverick Vinales, who is back on some kind of form again nowadays, looking really, really smooth and and wonderful on a motorbike. He always has been a great motorcycle racer. It's just he's been down in the doldrums a little bit of late. But, of course, he didn't make the start he needed to make. He dropped back through the field slightly. Um, But for me... You know, there was a gap up the inside. Jorge Martin went for it. Of course he did. You know, every other rider would have done it exactly the same. I don't care what they say after the event. He went for the gap. Maverick Vinales came right across the pack and squeezed the nose of Quattararo as Jorge Martin was ramming underneath of it. Quattararo was the unfortunate fella that ended up falling over Maverick Vinales and Zarco and Bezecchi, I think Bezecchi, Oliveira, I think, was in there as well. Um, but it looked to me like, and if I might say, on Sunday's race, exactly the same thing happened in a slightly different way. Maverick Minnale's got a slower start again and wasn't really the instigator of the, of the pinch point into Turn 1. But Alex Marquez came across really, really sharp to get up the inside the same as Jorge Martín. But because they weren't all pinching into Turn 1, he basically got away with that manoeuvre, as Jorge Martin, in my view, probably would have done if it hadn't been for the fact Vinales was coming across. Then cue the stewards. You know, someone obviously poked them and woke them up at some stage later on in the day. And um, and we have this very, very late. I mean, if there was going to be a penalty for that. All the angles were there instantaneously. From all angles, on boards, everything was available to the stewards. And it took how many hours after the, after the fact? Did we get a decision made on that? And then it was a, a long lap penalty in the main race the next day. So, by Jorge Martin finishing in third place in the sprint race, he kept Alex Marquez off the podium in the sprint race when perhaps he should have had his long lap penalty if that was deemed what he should have had. He should have had it in the race. It was an in-race penalty. What are they thinking, Scott, in your mind? how 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 is this... Consistently inconsistent. How do we have this situation where these penalties, they always seem to be falling? You talk about a turn one incident, the stewards are falling over themselves to make a silly mistake, seemingly every week. How does this happen? But remember what we said about the information overload with the Japanese
2: writing their notes down? <laughs> race, race control is kind of a little bit like that, and, and the stewards, and I get on really well with a lot of students and I have empathy for the situation they're placed in. So they're under loads of pressure to make penalties. They're under loads of pressure to be consistent with previous penalties. So you're busy looking through previous penalties and previous examples of similar incidents and trying to compare it all during the time during a short race where there's a lot going on. So you've got huge amounts of monitors replay stations you've got to communicate with different people in different languages to get replays they've obviously got their own monitor system so that they can can dynamically replay each of the cameras um
1: it's a lot there's there's so much going on well Um, i can i can see that i can see that being half an hour i can't see it you know hours later (laughs) i'm sure there's a story from the inside well, I mean, uh, let, let's 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 talk about our own domestic series here in the UK. Then BSB. I mean, uh, Stuart Higgs probably could, could be considered a, a dictator almost, although he doesn't work quite in that manner. In that Stuart Higgs makes the ultimate decision.
3: Ben, on... Benign
2: dictator, we we say benign dictator. Sorry, <laughs> a, benign. a benign dictator. Yeah, you know, one of the positive dictators.
1: <laughs> well, he, 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 it's, it's an interesting scenario, but Stuart Higgs has has got. You know, riders have a massive respect for his decisions, even when they've gone against them. You know, it, it seems that you've got one man, a one man kind of dictatorship almost. It's not because there are other people that can can, can influence him slightly. If if it's a, you know, maybe Eddie Roberts could get involved who's an ex-rider as well and he, he, on the platform and they can talk about it for five or ten minutes maybe outside. But he, he comes up with the right decisions fairly swiftly. It seems in, 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 to me, in particularly in MotoGP, maybe it's that notebook scenario. Maybe I just haven't given credit for the mo- notebook scenario. And you brought up a really good, you know, when those when you're dealing in your second or third language, that was a really good point that I hadn't thought of before, Scotty, was that, that, that you know, you are dealing with a lot of people with different nationalities that have all got input at the same time. And nuances—you know how you can say something in English and it can be not rude to us, but extremely rude to another nationality, and, and vice versa. I'm thinking the technical details, perhaps that can be the same thing. You know, the the nuance of 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 uh, seriousness maybe is lost in translation sometimes. I don't know. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, there is. It's, and like I said, it's it's some information overload when you're in those those places. Just the the room, just for doing the track limits, is now I think several FIM officials plus six or seven other donor operatives, all in a tight huddle in a tight space, just trying to manage track limits. Because as you make stronger regulations, you've got to manage and enforce those regulations, which ends up resulting in, in an exponential increase in the amount of workload in race control. So it's, it's not an easy situation. I think having people that are contemporary and previous races definitely helps. So our take as former racers is quite often different to the take of, of some of the non-racing officials. But you've still got to take a racer that can make a fast decision. If you want to come back to BSB, there is a, a stewards panel in British Superbikes. So Stewart is race director and had a small influence in that stewards panel and previously did make a lot of, especially the, the post-race uh, decisions, but now there is actually a separate stewards panel in British Superbikes to manage all of what, all of that that's going on, because the race director should not have their eye off the ball for the safety of the riders, because ultimately the race director is directing the safety of the race. And judicial stuff is handled by a separate group of people, Eddie Roberts being
1: one of them. Is that because it has become? I mean, that's why uh, Mike. Um, oh, I'll think of his name in a minute. Uh, is that why they've taken some of the decisions away from the race director in MotoGP as well? I mean, it's a, it's Mike Webb a um, responsibilities. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Mike Webb. I mean, it's, not, me. it's ultimately at one point when there was a fraction of the amount of information, you know, the TV cameras and some bad CCTV. And a certain element, if I'm going to be brutally honest, and I think a lot of us older riders or retired riders now see some of the other riders in a different light. So we used to self manage some of it. If somebody else was riding like an idiot and consistently poor, a group of you would go and say, hey, come on, you've been an idiot. And if you continue to be so, we will collectively <laughs> run you off the track, da, 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 all stuff that you would now get penalties for. I mean, you go back to the, the Rossi Marquez incident and a lot of older riders have a different take on it from from the, maybe the judicial decision from a more modern standpoint, shall we say. I mean, things change, they do. Um, however, you know, there is, there is respect amongst these isn't there and, and into either way. The, it's difficult to make these decisions in the short space of time with with too much information now. So I think it's uh, it's not as easy as it may seem, but I think the consistency does frustrate me as well. And I yeah, think yeah. there's also, like I said, there's a massive element of, oh, well, we did this to somebody else who's doing that before, so we have to be seen to be at least as strict. And there is no management amongst the riders, and the riders don't respect people that are issuing the punishment. And I've seen it where, particularly the younger riders, Will be told off or talked to, and they walk away going, (sighs) I mean, there are senior riders there, but the younger riders don't even know that half of the officials were ex riders. So they don't have a respect. And especially if it's a non ex rider trying to communicate with a 16, 17, 18 year old rider, you're not speaking the same language Mm -hmm. because of the way you ride. Now, you've all seen the pit box language, the, the way a rider communicates. You need to be able to communicate on the same level to be able to build a connection. So there isn't a respect for, of the riders for the judicial position of people. And also there isn't a respect between the riders, because instead of a rider, like I said, going to a motorhome and saying, hey, come on, like you're being an idiot. We all think you're being an idiot. There's now a you run to race control. And you go, did you see them doing this? I want to make a protest. I need you to look at this person. I need the judicial people, the, the stewards to be telling that person off. So it's become like teenagers at school it's so there has been a descent in the kind of like the self-management and with that like i said there's an exponential increase of the number of people needed to manage it
0: yeah well i mean that that is a nice little insight as to what i suppose uh, is the relationship and goes on perhaps in in the stewards room uh but coming back to that term one incident um in the sprint of course it was miguel Oliveira who continues to be the unluckiest rider of the season get <laughs> getting knocked off there i tell you what though, was great to see in the sprint um and i think you'll
1: agree keith as well Paulus bargrove w- what a ride from him polis bargrove was an absolute hero i mean uh, that man took such a literal smack in the face at the beginning of this season um and to come back at the level he's come back at on a motorbike that's not the easiest motorbike to ride in the world um perhaps uh he's he's i mean not uh, all of these bikes now are so close, so tight, so you know. When you've got the amount of aero you've got in a place like uh, Red Bull Ring as well, with everything moving around all of the time, I mean, to come back at the level he's come back at for me is is impressive.
0: Yeah, it was super cool to see. But you know what was interesting? Um, Mark Marquez
1: uh, gets his first Grand Prix finish. I can't, I can't believe that the Repsol Honda put out the PR. You know, twelfth place, and, and kind of they're they're, they're heralding a twelfth place. I had to tweet, I had to tweet that out earlier on in the week, and I saw that I couldn't believe it. That That's their high point of the season so far, and they're putting it out there. I think I'd have kept quiet. But can
2: you imagine what must be going on in his mind as well? Especially with the criticism in the press and social media, and everybody's an armchair expert. It's just wow, and to see. Sometimes how hard he still pushes every lap. Well, the other it's thing was as well—he
1: was the only man that ran a soft rear tire, so he's still in testing mode. And his times at the end of the race were actually pretty good. A, who, who is it? Death Stalker RVT. There you go, name check. Now, I don't know what that alludes to at all. But a man from Ontario sent me a message earlier on feedback on the Marquez running the soft tire. Well, all I can say to that, and I don't know whether you concur with it. Scott is that he's still trying different configurations at this point he's in test mode which you it's hard to believe that we are at this point in the season and Mar Marcus is trying something completely left of field no one else running a soft rear tyre and yet his times as he, the management of his rear tyre was so good he was still on the pace at the end of the race
2: yeah, but it also kind of speaks that the bike, the chassis balance isn't there. or It certainly doesn't match the chassis balance of the other bikes, so it's not working the tyres as hard or as hard as it needs to to be right at the
1: front. Mark did so, say it was the best solution.
2: <laughs> yeah, best of a bad lot. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Have Have so you noticed uh, as well, uh,
0: Mark's dad is now hanging out more and more in the uh, Grassini garage? Well, as you would, not you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> to that what you will. Uh, a bit well we've than... we've we've always talked about this. I mean Alex Marquez got a job at Honda because Mark was at Honda and Mark might be getting a job at UK because Alex is there. <laughs> hey, if you've got a brother, utilize it right. Uh <laughs> well, Alex Marquez is, is he's doing brilliantly at the moment. He is riding out I mean, how many times have we seen this from Alex Marquez in Moto three, Moto two and now Moto G P it always takes him three years to get to the pace the ultimate pace and he's there now
2: exactly if he can continue with that with some consistency it's also putting a whole season together is is hard
0: um it is but uh it, it, there was some enjoyable racing it wasn't the most exciting of moto gp races that we've seen but it was very exciting we've got just enough time to have a little look at what was going on in moto two and moto three moto
1: three keith what a race well i mean for what do you expect i mean they have just absolutely they do four abreast the last four riders across the line you couldn't really pick it I mean I'd have probably got it wrong as they went across the line if I'd have been commentating 93,500 people at trackside and uh, that was the opening race you know it was one of those ones where you were fully pumped for that when the checkered flag came out for that one and, and again was, you don't need that, 300 horsepower you, again, that, you don't
2: need 300 horsepower for, for a great racing
1: well back to your point absolutely absolutely right
0: and then, of course, well, it was, uh, so Moto3 on she ride on the line, and then you had Olgardo, uh Sasaki in thirds. Uh, but uh, the pole sitter, um, first pole for the Dutchman, uh, Keith, just missed out on a podium, but a, a sublime ride, really sort of putting himself uh, on the map a little bit.
1: Well, he was a rookie's winner last year, and he's a rookie in this class this year, and he's looking really, really sharp. He's actually shown... He showed up some good racing from down the down the field a couple of times and uh, I mean for it, the Dutch have got a great history this in is Colin now. is it Ve- Veja? Apologies. Yeah.
0: yeah, Veja, yeah.
1: I wonder if it's named after um, Colin Edwards. The only time I could never think of Colin Edwards and Dutch Grand Prix is when he fell off while leading. But the last bend of the last lap. Would you call someone Colin that had that record? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Cole. I know you're not listening. No. <laughs> Well, I hope you're not listening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it was
0: uh, it was uh, great to see uh, him doing very well indeed. Uh, Moto2, um, Pedro Acosta looked like he had it in the bag at uh, the early stages, um, but
1: then he didn't. Well, Viet- Vietti's made a comeback. I mean, where, where where has the real Vietti been for some time? I yeah. mean, it, it just, for, for me, I, oh, actually, we can combine the two here, Moto3 and Moto, Moto2, because Gerard uh, Macias, has yeah, made a move to stop and go SAG um, he's he's going to Moto 2 next year as well so that's an interesting um, signing for Jaume Messier moving up from Moto 3
2: <laughs> sorry
1: I thought I'd throw that one in no go for rubber, it well, I've it down so I've got a you uni- think you think it's a deserved signing <laughs> pardon me do you think it's deserved I think Jaume Messier is a good little rider yeah but it's yep. just it's, it's the team that, that's, that's struggled to actually put the funding together for some time you know, and you, you wonder whether SAG is going to continue at all. Mm. And here we go with a, a, a top-line name that's going to join Bo Benschneider, another um, Dutchman that's been going pretty well as well. So, you know, may, maybe, maybe Jean-Monts has took some money across. Who knows? I mean, like, it's, it's all done about money. And Motor 3 I mean, and Motor 2 teams are lacking in a bit of cash generally. Um, that's very, one, very
0: Formula 1 um bring a little bit of money with you uh well there was certainly some great action uh dixon as well uh a solid ride. didn't quite have the pace to to stay with uh the, the front guys but managed to get uh come home in fourth wasn't it for uh, jayton sam lowe's scary crash for him actually not for him but well, avoiding well not avoiding darren binder uh in that sh- additional chicane um luckily both both okay but whoa. binder is always involved in something, isn't he darren <laughs> binder and oh, a brick you know I have, a bit, I feel a bit for Darren Binder. I mean, we've <laughs> had Jake has taken it all back. I think well, not quite. Taken he has.
1: I mean, <laughs> I think Jake, Jake has done the decent thing. I think yeah. the unfortunate thing with Jake, he, he was running a bit hot when someone stuck a mic under his face and uh, yeah, and, and, and got the full broadside. But Jake, Jake's a good lad. Um, Darren Binder's not a bad lad, although he does have a bit of a rep. That's a slight problem, I think. But in, this, in this occasion, he got nothing to do with it. Maybe Sam is going for the biggest crash damage bill he can get before he moves to World Superstore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the same person paying the bill. Yes, it's the same person.
0: Oh dear. Uh, well, look, I think that just about brings us um, uh, out of time. Um, where does it all go? I mean, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time yet again. You're welcome. For us, what, what's what's next for you? Where are you off to this weekend?
2: cadwell park this weekend uh for british Superbikes. then i think there's potential of a weekend off which sounds amazing and then it is is core for world superbikes
0: amazing Parting
2: uh, in the park cadwell park <laughs> oh yes and there will be tens of thousands of screaming fans it's always a great atmosphere at cadwell and there's a, there always some interesting things to be seen aren't there so
1: there and really are it's a, it's a it's like a goat track in comparison with where we've just been talking about it's uh a- it's a, just a brilliant racetrack. If only we could run Grand Prix at tracks like that. Wow.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's one of the, one of the places like Donington. We're actually well blessed with amazing race circuits in the UK where when you string all of the corners together, it. but you make a mistake at Turn 1, you're still suffering at Turn 4, aren't you? It's, uh, it's, it's great.
1: Yeah. Make, a, make a mistake at Turn 1 and you're probably going to be at that tree, propped up against <laughs> yeah. a tree in the middle of the field.
2: That that has gone several years ago, but <laughs> <For that laughs> I <you> know
0: what you mean. Well, it sounds like it's uh, going to be a good weekend, but uh, I'm sure we'll try and uh, persuade you to come back onto the sh- on the show later on in the season. Uh, but for now, Scott, thank you so much, and and that's actually Thanks, it. Harry. Thanks, Keith. Uh, thank you. That's actually it from both of us for uh, the time being. Make sure you tuned in across the OMG MotoGP socials and YouTube. For all the latest news and analysis across the week and we shall be back with you on thursday uh, for omg extra your 15 minute hit although we were 25 minutes last year so that means i need to keep keith in under more control uh, wish me luck uh get your questions in for that omg motogp at gmail.com or you can send it to us via social media and please remember it's really important to leave us a review especially in these early stages of the podcast uh, so wherever you listen download watch the podcast from a little five stars and something nice to say goes a massive way. Uh, if you've got nothing nice to say, well, don't don't say it. We don't want to hear it. Uh, although constructive feedback is always allowed. Uh, anyway, I'm
3: rambling. We'll see you on Thursday. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.